Monday Lecture Educational Conversations Made Simple on the Viewpoint. It's the Monday Lecture, and our guest this evening is Mr. Mulet Zimbeki. Sir, thank you so much for your time. Take it away. Thank you. Uh, good evening, everybody. The title of the lecture is The Rise and Fall of Africana and African Nationalism in South Africa. Next year marks a hundred years of rule of South Africa by nationalists. Africana nationalists came to power in 1924 when their party, the National Party, won its first election in alliance with the Labour Party, which represented white workers. The National Party ruled South Africa until 1994, except for a short period during the Second World War when it stepped down in opposition to South Africa joining the British in the war against the Nazis. The National Party lost power during the first democratic election in 1994. African nationalists, represented by the African National Congress, or the ANC, came to power by winning the first democratic election in 1994. The ANC will have ruled South Africa uninterrupted for 30 years for 30 years next year signs however are that the ANC will lose its majority during next year's elections this will mark the end of 100 years of South Africa's rule by nationalists but why are africana and african nationalists losing power more importantly what is next for South African politics? Nationalism is a social and political movement that is driven by a deep sense of grievance. Population groups become aggrieved when they feel a strong sense of exclusion from enjoying the political, social, and economic benefits in a given society. In the case of South Africa, we have two schools of nationalism, Africana nationalism and African nationalism, both of which were aggrieved because of exclusion by the British from the benefits of colonialism. Nationalists, therefore, do not fight to change the socioeconomic structure of the colonial system. They fight to be included in it. This is why the South African economic system reorganized by the British between 1900 and 1909 to exploit the country's vast mineral resources through cheap black labor remains intact to this day. Africana nationalists, a coalition of landowners, traders, religious leaders, and professionals gained control of the state from the British in 1910 on the understanding that the mining-driven economic system would remain intact. Africana nationalists as landowners also used their control of the state to develop their commercial farming businesses and its related communication and transportation infrastructure by taxing mining profits. African nationalists on the other hand, a coalition of non-property owners 
made up of professionals, traders, religious leaders, organized labor, civil society, took control of the South African state from Africana nationalists in 1994. The economic system developed by the British, however, remained. The ANC used its control of the state to tax the rest of society in order to promote a consumption driven for the benefit of the black African middle class. South Africa's structural unemployment can be traced to how the mining industry was founded in the 19th century by the British, how the mining industry operates today, and how the mining industry labor practices became the dominant economic labor activities in South Africa, and how these practices shaped the development of other economic sectors. All this, of course, is generally known, so we will not uh, explain it in any detail. For diamond and gold mining to develop, mining companies needed first control of the mineralized land. Secondly, mining companies needed reliable supply of cheap, unskilled labor. The solution to the first challenge was provided by the British government. It, expropriate, it expropriated the diamond mineralized land and eventually it destroyed the Boer governments of the Transvaal and Orange Free State Republics. The second challenge of obtaining reliable supplies of cheap labor was more complex. The mining companies, the British government, as well as the governments of the Cape and Natal colonies, eventually came up with a simple solution of policies that created a vast pool of migrant labor males from as far north as Tanganyika, today Tanzania, and Angola, as well as from British and Portuguese-controlled territories in between. The South African labor, migrant labor system compelled African male adults to pay various taxes in cash, which could be obtained only by selling one's labor to mining companies for a specified period of time. A condition of the contract was that the laborers' family and dependents remained in the rural areas. So the mining companies bore no responsibility for their costs, nor for the costs incurred in the event that the miner got injured or killed. That's part of how the cheap labor system operates. A classic study of how gold mining industry maintained cheap black labor for decades was by the late Francis Wilson, author of a book, Labor in the South African Gold Mines, who found, who found that, whose research found that black miners' wages had, for example, remained unchanged between 1911 and 1969. One of the most important outcomes of, of the migrant labor system was that it gradually destroyed pe peasant agriculture from whence the migrant workers came. This led to the creation of the vast pool of unemployed rural people in South Africa that became a characteristic 
of South Africa's modern minerals exporting economy. Through the past system, the unemployed rural poor were forced to remain in rural areas. With the abolition of the past system in the 1980s, poor Africans from rural areas in South Africa and from neighboring countries have been pouring into urban areas, thus explaining why South Africa is both the most unequal country in the world and simultaneously has one of the highest unemployment in the world. The flooding into urban areas of the rural unemployed population has led to the emergence of massive shanty settlements that that ring virtually all South African towns and cities. The difference between two nationalism was not that one was white and the other was black. The Africana nationalist elite were, as I pointed out, a coalition of landowners who produced maize, wheat, fruit, wine, sugar, beef, wool. This elite used the mining industry and the export of mineral resources to fund the state, which it used to drive development and profitability of their private farms and their private businesses. The African elite, on the other hand, were a coalition of black middle-class professionals and traders, organized labor, civil society, faith-based organizations, and intelligentsia. As this elite did not own land or any other means of production, its priority in its control of the state was to live off state revenues through taxing the economy and taxing the wealthy. The Africana nationalist elite used their control of the state to advance the development and profitability of their private lands and other businesses by using the following strategies. They excluded the black majority population from political power. They maintained cheap labor in the mines through repression and extended that system to agriculture and other sectors of the economy. They developed the transportation and the communication infrastructure of South Africa. They developed education and health facilities, but for the training of the white owners and their white managers and their children. They used state revenues to create state-owned industries that foreign and domestic capital was not interested in investing in, in the manufacture of fertilizer, iron and steel, armaments, power generation, the building of railways, public broadcasting, national airlines, and so on. They advanced limited industrialization driven by protectionism and the combating of economic sanctions by foreigners. Africana nationalist rule was, however, doomed to fail. It was based on excluding the majority of the population from political power. It thought it could contain the consequences of political exclusion through the use of extreme violence 
against the black population. It went so far as developing nuclear weapons to this end. Secondly, the continuation of the British created migrant labor system and the exclusion of black workers from trade union rights was also going to undo Africana nationalist rule. Ironically, this, it created an alliance between black mine workers and white mine owners who wanted stability in the mining industry's labor relations environment. Finally, the international investors and the international community in general demanded an end to apartheid on pain of destroying the South African economy through sanctions, through economic sanctions. African nationalists, when they took control of the state from the Africana nationalists, used the state to achieve their objective of increasing private consumption of the black African middle class and their electoral supporters. Support, supporters the rural poor, the black urban working class, and the black African middle class. This was what they did to achieve these objectives. They promoted the democratization of, the, of South African state governance. They eliminated racial discrimination against the, African, the black population. They transformed the public services by opening it up to, to all races and strengthening tax collection. They re however, they retained the cheap migrant labor, mineral export-driven economic system. They opened the economy to which had been under sanctions to international trade and investment. And finally, they created a welfare state for the poor by transferring resources from production sectors to government and private household consumption, thus creating a captive voting pool for the governing party. African nationalist rule was therefore also doomed to fail. By continuing with the British created migrant labor system, notwithstanding that mine workers had the right to organize, it perpetuated poverty of the miners' families in the rural areas. This eventually led to demands for higher wages, which was only surpassed through the use of police massacre as at, Af as at Marikana. The opening up of the economy to international competition without first modernizing its manufacturing section led to deindustrialization de and therefore to growing unemployment in the major urban areas. African nationalist elite therefore does not have an interest in promoting the industrialization of the economy. This explains why under the rule of the African nationalist elite, even the limited industrialization achieved under the Africana nationalist elite is endangered, uh, is endangered as imports from chicken pieces to tin tomatoes balloon. 
as to be expected, extensive poverty and unemployment under African nationalist rule has led to social instability amongst the urban poor, culminating in a major blow-up in KwaZulu-Natal and Gauteng in July 2021, following the imprisonment of Jacob Zuma. More is to come, according to observers. The ANC's Black Economic Empowerment, BEE, policies also alienated many sections of its former constituencies. Ultimately, all these policies of the ANC convinced large numbers of voters that ANC policies were designed to benefit only the black African middle class. This is, explains why in the November 2021 local government elections, the ANC vote for the first time fell below 50% to 46%. The use of the state by South Africa's two nationalist elites during the last 100 years has achieved one important outcome. It constrained the ability of the economy of South Africa to develop to its full potential. The insatiable demand for cheap black labor by the Africana elite and their allies and partners in the mining sector, while it enabled a certain amount of economic development, especially in agriculture, mining, and infrastructure, to happen, it, however, hobbled the broader and deeper development of South Africa but by constraining the development of the country's human capital through misguided education and employment policies, such as the infamous Dr. Verivu's Bantu education and job reservation. The African elite has continued to hobble the economic development of the country by diverting much of the economic surplus through the sex tax system from investment to consumption, especially consumption by the African elite to equalize their private consumption with that of the white middle and upper middle classes. The state's poor education policies also continue to undermine the development of the country's human capital and entrepreneurship. All this explains finally why both Africana nationalism and African nationalism were doomed. South Africa today sits at number 135 in the Human Capital Index out of 173 countries according to the World Bank. Such poor skill levels, with such poor skill levels, the economy is doomed to decline, and so is governance by nationalists who benefit from the population's low economic skills. And that was the 
Hashtag Monday Lecture here on SAFM 6 November 2023. I propose we take a very short ad break to give you all an opportunity to participate in the question and answer that is most certainly encouraged here as we pay our gratitude to Ndade Muletz Mbeki, South African political economist, discussing briefly for those who joined during the course of this lecture. The rise and fall of Afrikaner and African nationalism in South Africa, pretty much regaling accounts important accounts of the National Party and the African National Congress after it in the 100 years of nationalism in the South African political economy landscape. The time is 2037. After the ad break, please dial 086-000-2032. That's the number you dial to get talking to our guest this evening and probe him, probe him robustly. He confirms in his words, open quote, I love these listeners. They really can engage the issues, close quote. So he's more than happy to engage you. And please do, please do. And you know exactly how you do that, robustly and respectfully. For those of you who want to engage on WhatsApp, please do so too. 0614-104-107. It feels good to be back. on SAFM. This is how all... It started. Next year marks 100 years of rule of South Africa by nationalists. Afrikaner nationalists came into power in 1924 when their party, the National Party, won its first election in alliance with the Labour Party, which represented white workers. The National Party ruled South Africa until 1994, except for a short period during the Second World War when it stopped when it stepped down in opposition to South Africa joining the British in the war against the Nazis. Think Jan Smuts think all of those things at that time. The National Party lost power during the first democratic elections in 1994. This is now declared yielding for Madiba. And of course, we know what has since happened in the 30 years. African National Congress and next year being what it is politically, some are saying 2024 is our 1994 by most accounts corroborating what has already been said on the platform this evening that it may very well happen that the African National Congress will lose their majority in the National Party, in the National Parliament, I beg your pardon, and with that, a whole host of changes, politically and by extension, economically and socially, will follow suit. This is something that is scheduled to happen by analysts' accounts in less than a year from now. But let us engage the 99 years we are talking about here, white nationalism and black nationalism, in the true sense. And Dembeki, thank you so much for that lecture. And I am minded to simply start in the latter day. Whilst one can probably understand why white nationalism happened the way that it did, it was pr- predicated on something fundamentally different to the second version of nationalism. Racism, white domination, oppression, the sponsoring at the expense of white and black respectively. But we see here where at least that aspect is not only manifestly absent, but should be and is officially absent. But the results are one and the same. How did the ANC, from what you have said, get it so wrong? I can give many reasons and many would be obvious insofar as it relates to the National Party. But the ANC, how could it get it so wrong? How could that template not have been used to the extent that it was available and cash in hand or infrastructure available or sufficient emotion to move decidedly away from a system that in itself became extinct within very short space of time. How did brand South Africa and the global appeal that was so obvious in 1994 
not become something which would, in the final analysis, offer us a net effect of human capital development index in the top 50 in the world, because our resources certainly should get us there. Well, there's one word for this, and that's selfishness. And uh, I can add a a second word, which is greed. Once the ANC got into power, it started to become selfish and to focus on itself rather than on the development of the country and, above all, on the development of the majority of the people of South Africa. So what then happened was that it adopted policies that enriched the black middle class. We saw last week an announcement by the government itself Mm. that 55,000 civil servants are earning more than a million rands each a year. But where does this money come from? And what could it have been used? Could it have been used for? It could have been used to build proper housing for the people of South Africa. It could have been used to, to build proper schools. It could have been used to repair the railways so that our export industry can export. Instead, it is paid as phenomenal salaries to the cadres deployed by the ANC into the public sector. That is what selfishness has done for South Africa. In a sentence, could I summarize that as, and if this is a quotation, this is not me, I did not join the struggle to be poor. Oh, absolutely. That summarizes everything. The, fa- our, the famous spokesperson, as it happened, for then President Mbeki, uh, was Smart Ngonyama. He is the one who said that. And Smart Ngonyama is now uh, ambassador to Japan as part of his reward for, for the service uh, and for that statement that, that he made. I'm going to revert to that because I do think there's a context to it, not that justifies it, but explains it perhaps as to how we get to a point where something like that can be said. I do want to ask this question. In 1992, in the policy documents of the ANC, they published this ready to govern ANC policy guidelines for a democratic South Africa addressing a whole host of issues, a democratic constitution for South Africa, a new system of local government, economic policy, the land, environment, housing, health, social welfare, education, training and scientific development, education, the development of human resources, science and technology, establishing a democratic media, arts and culture, sports and recreation, peace and security, youth, international relations. If you will, I don't imagine this would not have been what informed the cabinet of Madi by 1994, the very much hotly contested points at the negotiations of CODES and the multi-party national, multi-party negotiating forum after that becomes the interim constitution, becomes 94, becomes the constitution, becomes Madiba's first. All of that ready to govern is found in various parts in now the constitutional settlement, the Bill of Rights. What about that was devoid of the truth of what becomes of a nationalist approach to government. In other words, how much of this was smokescreen to what ultimately became of the nationalist agenda as we have seen it? Or is it purely a case if this document had been implemented by the right people, 
who were not greedy, who were not selfish, the fortunes per the document could easily have yielded us to our promised land. Well, you see, the, 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 during the struggle, nationalist movements are actually, although they remain controlled by the middle class, but they are a coalition of a huge number of ordinary people, of the poor, of, of workers, of peasants, of students. So for that coalition, what you have just read in Ready to Govern, they believed it. They believed it could be achieved, and they believed that's what they were fighting for. But once power was won, the middle class section of the nationalist movement takes control of power and runs the government. And it implements its primary agenda, which is to advance the welfare of the middle class, first and foremost. There are two groups that emerge within these middle class nationalist spaces of the Afrikaner nationalists and the African nationalists. The Afrikaner nationalists had what we now know to be the Bruderbond. What is the equivalent in the African nationalist context? I am minded to think what certainly meets me and are the architects of what we have at least understood to be the dominant space within this middle class of the African national gender, BEE, the, the, the elite capitalists within this nationalist space. Is that a fair characterization or completely wrong? Where it is wrong, correct me, please. Well, I don't think there's a comparison between BEE. Well, let me rephrase that. Mm-hmm. The, the role of the Bund. the Bund were part of the Afrikaner nationalist movement. They were like a think tank, mm-hmm. if you wish. Sure. They were the think tank of the National Party. So that was what... However, the, the, the most important part of the, of, of the Africana nationalists were the landowners, especially in the Western Cape, because they had a lot of resources. Is this where the Stellenbosch, the Stellenbosch that's Mafia where comes the from? Stellenbosch, the notion of the Stellenbosch Mafia comes from. Mm-hmm. The Western Cape, we all forget, was the area where slavery was introduced by Van Riebeek in, in, in 1657. Mm-hmm. And the, this, the farmers in the Western Cape, where they, they expropriated the land from the indigenous African people who were living there, and imported slaves who they then used to farm that land. And that became the hub of the wealth creation of the Africaners. So you had that section of the Africana population which became very wealthy, linked to through the Dutch East India Company uh, and later through the British and, and the National Party to the global markets. Mm-hmm. And they became the finance, the financiers of the emerging Africana middle class and Africana professionals. Does the African nationalist have an equivalent of the Bruderbund? No, they don't have. No. Why? Because even if then what they were supposed to do for the purposes of driving the impact and the distribution and implementation of ready to govern the policy document of 1994. How was that supposed to happen without having a nucleus within the body 
that irrespective of the changes of personnel in the respective administrations, for instance, this should have been foreseen. Madiba was at the time of his inauguration a a 74-year-old. No, no, not even a 76-year-old. So he was never going to be there beyond one term. And this is something that he said on day one, I'm here for one term. Of course, and we're going to get a bit too close to family. Now, we know who succeeded him and for how long he did. Why would there not have been a Bruderbond equivalent that says, irrespective who is the puppet master, as it were, in other words, pulling the strings at state, this is how we define ourselves, and this is how we move this project of democratizing South Africa and distributing wealth to our people, whose history we know. Well, I think that there is a kind side to it. Let me start by saying, what the ANC in government inherited, it inherited a massive state, which it didn't have the capacity to, to manage first. And then one of its mistakes was it got tempted to retain the state-owned enterprises because it saw them as a cash cow for itself to feed off this, what they call the, 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 the feeding trough. So they were tempted to retain structures which they were not able to to control and 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 to and to manage properly, and these structures became the centers of corruption. So corruption is very disruptive, and that's what happened. Was that you soon after the ANC? becomes the government, it is sold the notion of black economic empowerment, and then within no time, it is sold the nation, the notion of CADA deployment, and it, it manages institutions, it deploys people to manage institutions, which they have no capacity to manage. So then corruption becomes central in the state itself. I would love to take more bites of this cherry. It's a very juicy one. Of course, this is not a dialogue between two, but rather that of the nation here on SAFM. Song as on my back, the back, 6 November 2023. Let's go to the callers. Lebohang from Cape Town is on. Laki from Durban. Oranye Lake from Durban is on. I beg your pardon for the mispronunciation there. We've got just shy of eight minutes, but I think we may, not promising, we may just take it over if there is indulgence that is offered on the part of our guest. It's too juicy a topic to just leave hanging. Monday Lecture. Educational conversations made simple on The Viewpoint. On The Viewpoint. Yeah, we continue only because of the popularity of the guest, the importance of the conversation and the participation from you at home. So the Monday Lecture continues. I'm not trying to make precedent of this or develop a culture of it. It really should have ended in the previous hour. But how could we at that time end this conversation the way it was going. It really was developing a lot of steam, but all of that steam now has to be pumped out. We have to slow down. Dadumbege, you've received a couple of questions and comments. Here's one that I do want to ask finally, please, because it just names, it, it has a couple of names that are relevant to this conversation even. I just want to check what is the take on the good work and development that was done by the former homeland leaders that were lost in the new ANC government, initiatives by leaders like Lucas Mangope, and L.L. Sebe, that's Sangha from East London. And when you mention Sebe, I think of a particular song, rather derogatory, but a song nonetheless. 
is all called one gooban, called one gooban. You all know that. If you know that song, sing it. Play it as a voice note. I'll play it on air. Dadenbegi, you want to respond? Yes, let me respond by, let me start by the last question which you have raised uh, about uh, the, the work of that happened in the homelands. As it happened today, I was talking to a friend who is an advisor to on development to the west to the Eastern Cape Premier. And I was asking him to identify the irrigation projects in the Eastern Cape that were started during the Bantustan era. They are all fallow. That's the answer. Well, now my thinking is that I would like to do something about reviving those pro- those irrigation programs because they uh, irrespective of who started them, they 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 should serve the needs of the poor people in the rural areas. So so that's why I I I have started I've I've asked the Eastern Cape government if they have a register of these kinds of irrigation projects, and then we put together some um, working group to see how we can revive those projects for the benefit, not as a business for me, but for the benefit of the the communities where where those are. Now, coming back to to the issue of the Springbok emblem, well, the reality is is that the the retention of the Springbok emblem, I think, was really Mandela's project. Uh, Mandela was very was very sensitive about the key sentimental institutions, especially of the Africanas, because he wanted to bring the Africanas along into the democratic society so that they don't feel that they are the losers in the, in the democratization of South Africa. Um, he knew that the African colored Indians were the beneficiaries of democracy. He knew that the English-speaking white South Africans had never been colonized, they had never been oppressed. So for them, it it was happy days as as before. But for the Africaners, the white Africaners, there was this risk which he felt of them feeling marginalized. So he thought that one of their valuable emblems or symbols was the Springboks. And so I think he agreed. That's why he he, he insisted on the retain, retain, retention of the name. And of course, you know what happened during that famous uh, match. I think it was in 1990. 24 June 1995. 1995. Ellis Park, Never forget it. Yes. So... Mandela used his own prestige to show support for rugby and for the Springbok. I must say, this was the first time I watched rugby where uh, was that occasion. So that's where the, the retention of the Springboks is. On the question of the slogan of ready to govern and what happened to, to it, there is actually a very important book by a man called Dr. Kulumbata. He wrote a book 
uh, I think it was published in 2017, if I'm not mistaken, called Unmasked, Why the ANC Failed to Govern. Uh, Dr. Kulumbata had left the country uh, with the ANC in 1976, and he and the ANC looked after his organization, looked after his education up to PhD level, and he became one of the ANC uh, officials. So he knows the story of the ANC from the inside, and he wrote this book explaining what had not been done during, during the exile years, which did not prepare the, the ANC to govern the country. And it, it's a very important book. I, I suggest, you know, if you can find it, to, to, to read it for those who are, who are interested. One, one of the interesting things that I can mention, I remember as a student in the United Kingdom, and I was talking to a, a student who, who was a member of the Palestine Liberation Organization, and he was asking me if the ANC tells me what to study. So I was laughing at him. I said, the ANC tell me what to study? Of course not. I study what I want to study. Oh, he said, you are lucky the PLO tells us what to study. So the PLO was already preparing its people to, to run their country, and we didn't uh, pre prepare ourselves uh, in the way that the PLO did prepare mm. its own members, its young people. Dr. Meg, I'm going to have to cut it there because we simply don't have the time. We have the appetite, we have the material, we have the content, we have the listenership, and above all else, we have the questions that you can certainly, as you would respond, advance our collective understanding or even curiosity would be piqued so that we can, have, we can ask even more questions. Two things I want to say. Do we, and perhaps you may just give me a 30-second response to both of these. Do we understand what becomes of a transitional government, especially when there is an incumbent who understands that its time may be up? The nationalists in the early 90s knew their time was up, and we know the mayhem that resulted in that, however it might have been characterized. There was mayhem, there was instability, and the nation teethered. Are we not in a similar position, albeit in different worlds, brought on by different things, where perhaps the nation may teether, or those things that brought us to that point in the 90s may yet again come alive now? Short answer, please. And finally, I did not join the struggle to be poor and the characterization of the greed and selfishness that you speak about. Are people who go to war and in the trenches and be in exile and be on the island and really become the bodies who's, who, who bear the bodies that are lashed in the name of this struggle. Are those people in a position, genuinely so, to hold each other accountable? If, if, if I go through the struggle with you deep in the trenches, days on end, we are literally in a game reserve where a lion or the enemy's bullet may find us. And many are indeed lost along the way. We start the journey as 10 and we finish as 2. And what you and I experience, that I put it to you. 
humanely, that disallows me from holding you to account where certain things go wrong in governance because our history is far too deep. Final comment from you, one minute on both. Yeah, these are very difficult questions. You see, a transition period is just that, totally unpredictable. Uh, There are people who you can go to and they will tell you that they can predict what it will look like. But to tell you the truth, nobody knows what comes out of a transition. A transition period is like a revolution. You can never tell what the outcome of it. You can tell what the original intention was, but what the outcome is, because there are so many factors that come up which are not planned for. So we can't tell. Today we are in the middle of a transition period. Mm -hmm. With With the end of the nationalist era in South Africa, we are faced with the situation as to what follows the nationalist era. And we don't know. Okay. Got it. Accountability? Accountability, yes, of course. It's very difficult to get your close comrades to be accountable. When you see them doing something wrong, your temptation is to turn a blind eye to it. So I agree with that. SAFM, that was the first lecture, or that was the lecture for the first Monday of November 6 with the rise and fall of Africana and African nationalism in South Africa. What a wonderful way to start a week, to start a journey yet again. Once you get to the top of one hill, you get to that top and you see there are a thousand other hills and you have to go down and you have to take the journey on again to get to another mountaintop. Something like that, Madiba said. Well, here we are again together at long last how great it has been. The conversation, of course, continues until the top of the hour with now the conversation with Dr. Linda Ngobengomo, CEO Nelson Mandela Children's Fund, after the break.